from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Welcome to this special series of the Centre for European Reform podcast from our annual Ditchley Conference. My name is Sam Lowe. I'm a senior research fellow at the CER. As we do every year, we've invited 49 of the world's top economists to gather in this wonderful stately home in the Oxfordshire countryside to discuss some of the bigger issues facing European policymakers. And, and today we're going to discuss the political economy of climate change. And we've just had quite a, I think, good discussion on, a, on the panel about this with, with, with some differing views. Uh, here with me today, I have uh, Associate Professor Orsa Lofgren, who's a Senior Lecturer and Deputy Head of the Department for Economics at the University of Gothenburg. And I also have uh, Professor Richard Toll, who's a Professor of Economics at the University of Sussex. So my first question to you both is, what with the US pulling out of the Paris Agreement, what, what's Europe's role in fighting climate change? So I think uh, Europe has an important role in, in terms of leadership because if, if there are like you need to balance at, at least two things at the same time here. One is uh, moving ahead, trying to work towards a global carbon price, which I think most economists would agree to being a carbon tax, a global carbon tax, but we are very far away from that. And we need to sort of on a, on a European level work with our sort of incentives on, on in our region and how we can deal with that over time. At the same time as a part of that is becoming a leader for, for the rest of the world and show how you can do this. Someone will have to move first, but you don't want to move very far away. I mean, there are states, the US withdrawal, we, you know, we will see. There are some issues in California, for example, but there are important uh, state initiatives in the US. So I'm, I'm, I'm not very worried at this stage. Although I thought, it was, so, so one of the interesting things we, we discussed in the panel and you discussed specifically was using Sweden as an example of setting very ambitious yeah. targets, yes. but they're not necessarily always... No, so the, the targets in Sweden are, are regulated by climate law, which is a fairly detailed, if you want to sort of take away those, those laws, it's, it's more than just one election away. But within that law, it's also how you report that the government has every fourth year need to uh, present a plan how to reach the targets. Uh, so this is fairly new, but Sweden want to take on a leadership role. If, if there is a value with that, that's a debate that's going on all the time. What would the value comprise of how much costs are we willing to take on? And it's the same issues as for, for Europe. Yeah. But I don't see that, that there is another way then. So Richard, are, are you worried about Trump uh, pulling out of the Paris Agreement? Yes, but perhaps not because of climate reasons. Essentially, the Paris Agreement prescribes that countries have a climate policy. And Trump could have just done his Trump thing. And I mean, the, the Paris Agreement also says that every new climate policy has to be better uh, than the previous climate policy, and Trump could have just done his Trump thing and said, my climate policy is shinier than Obama's, and he would have gotten away 
have it basically everything because Paris does not have any binding targets or any enforcement uh, mechanisms. Uh, I really see Trump's movement as one of vandalism of international institutions rather than that it has significant implications for uh, climate policy because regardless of who is going to succeed Trump and when, uh, the U.S. is unlikely to move very fast on climate policy anyway. Um, and that's perfectly allowable under the Paris Agreement. But I, I see it really as sort of his first assault on international institutions that we have seen in other domains as well. Interesting. So, so what, would, what should you, Europe do? What's the policy? Well, within Europe, I mean, what we need for, for climate policy is a carbon tax, a uniform carbon tax, and nothing but a carbon tax. Uh, and that would apply to European emissions. We just get our own house in order, and not just in terms of announcing very ambitious targets, uh, but also actually living up uh, to those things and having policy in place that are not needlessly expensive or do not needlessly uh, reward people and companies that are particularly good at lobbying, but that actually go after uh, emissions. And that is, I think, one of the main problems in European climate policy, that it's much easier understood as an exercise in rent-seeking than as an exercise in greenhouse gas emission reduction. Um, outside the, uh, the borders of Europe, uh, there's, there's two things, as I already mentioned, that there is other parts of the world look at Europe as a regulator and sometimes copy uh, things and sometimes respond to the stand standards that we set. Uh, but we should, of course, not forget that the solution to climate change lies in new technology. And what we've seen, particularly in solar and wind, is that Europe has financed the initial stages of the uh, technological development to the point that wind and solar now become commercially attractive. Uh, and that, of course, means that if you are an entrepreneur in India, you're thinking about building a new power plant, then you should actually think twice about building a coal-fired power plant because it looks like concentrated solar power is cheaper. And part of that is technology that was initially financed by European, particularly German, uh, subsidies. And that, and that is, I think, much more important uh, that Europe does that because, after all, our emissions at the moment and our future emissions aren't that significant, right? So, so tax the externality, spend money on solar, wind, subsidise it. Well, I, I would not say spend money in the sense of subsidizing. Right. <laughs> I think that the carbon tax it would incentivize people uh, to would incentivize companies to spend that money. I'm not talking about massive government subsidies. Okay. Also, what's your policy mix? Or you can I respond. agree. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> so, so I agree. I, I have some maybe two things. One one is. Um, for some of these in technological investments that are needed, uh, there are more to it, and I'm trying to figure this out, than, than the carbon price in terms of some sort of infrastructure or coordination that makes the investments profitable. Like for CCS, let's say it's, you, you still need someone to actually uh, store the, the carbon emissions, and there is an infrastructure around the investment, which is something you might need to get at some sort of private-public uh, corporation or subsidy. I'm, I'm, we don't know this exactly how, how this should work out, but that points to the fact that the end game is really to get a global carbon price in place, but on the way for us as economists, I think, to be, be relevant, we need to support policymakers in 
like you say, not making excessively expensive and, and wrong policy mixes. But there are for sure, for a number of time, uh, policies that can companion more than overlap uh, a carbon price and, and support the price to increase over time. And I think that that's important. So there is some sort of timing effect, which is just a political reality. Thank you. So, so, so to conclude our, our, our podcast, there, there's, there's obviously a lot of negativity when it comes to climate change. What is the case for optimism if there is one? I mean, if you look at how the energy landscape has changed over the last 20 years or so, the, the price of solar has come down much faster than anybody imagined. The price of uh, wind power has come down substantially too. The price uh, of batteries, and particularly large-scale batteries, to store uh, a large amount of electricity for a short amount of time, the price of those things have come down. Uh, material science has jumped leaps and bounds, so uh, everything is becoming uh, lighter and stronger, and, but also therefore more energy efficient. Uh, so I think there is a lot of hope there that in the sense that whereas 20 years ago if we imagined what the energy sector and the, the, the uh, agricultural sector would look like around this time and what would be the dominant technologies, I think that landscape has completely changed and now it is very hard to imagine as people did 20 years ago that the future of energy would be a return to coal. That is simply not going to happen. The future of energy is renewable. Um, and that is what we have seen happening now. And I haven't even started talking about uh, what we see in terms of energy fuels uh, that are likely to come uh, onto the market relatively soon. Uh, we've also seen in terms of methane emissions we now, they, they stuck uh, barley genes into rice and as a result methane emissions are going down. Previously we thought that we needed to re-engineer cows into essentially kangaroos to reduce methane emissions, but now it can probably, uh, we can go a whole lot, uh, a, a, a large part of the way with adding seaweed to their diet. Uh, so things have changed and it seems to be that relatively cheap, maybe even commercially attractive uh, types of energy and types of agricultural practices will go a long way to avoiding the very high uh, greenhouse gas emission scenarios that we were thinking about 20, 10 years ago. Because if we want to move towards real carbon pricing, we need public acceptance. And that's also something that has changed mm -hmm. and is changing quite rapidly in terms of there is a generation that's more interested in, in those issues and, and acceptance. I mean, even this meeting here at Ditchley Park, actually in the earlier sessions about macroeconomic issues, I think in all of them climate was mentioned. So there is some momentum, some that's a very positive sort of energy moving towards this global price and creating incentives for the type of technology changes we need. Thank you both very much, and uh, I've, I've taken you away from lunch for too long, so let's, <laughs> let's call it a day there and go and eat. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.